0: Andreas Kluth chose Hannibal, nemesis of the ancient Romans, as the prime example of what it means to be both victor and vanquished, but he further illustrates the issue of success versus failure with personal examples and those drawn from many notable lives. Hannibal and me, what history's greatest military strategist can teach us about success and failure. Mr. Kluth is the U.S. West Coast correspondent for The Economist magazine, for which he covers the politics, society, and economy of California and the Western states. We're very pleased to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Andreas Kluth.
1: Well, thank you. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: Well, we need to talk about Hannibal, but b- before we do, I would like to briefly detour into one figure from history who rather concisely summarizes much of what your book is about. Can you remind us about King Pyrrhus and his famous attack on Rome and what, what that teaches us?
1: Very perceptive of you to start with that. Um, he appears briefly in the book. Um, he Pyrrhus... Was a king of Epirus. That was a Hellenistic, meaning sort of Greek, uh, kingdom, and he lived one generation before Hannibal, and he was the f- first Greek-speaking general to attack the Romans, and uh, he kept winning. Some of your listeners have, have guessed by now. We have this phrase "Pyrrhic victories." Well, it comes from him. So, he, so from him we get the phrase "Pyrrhic victory" when you're you're winning a pointless victory, a, a victory that costs you so much in blood, in this case, or in something else, that it would have been better not to have this particular victory at all. That's a Pyrrhic victory. But that's our phrase today. In his, at that time, Pyrrhus was a great sort of swashbuckling hero, and Hannibal quite admired him. But he was the first to go at the Romans, and then he never defeated them, obviously, but he kept winning in the battles. And that was a pointless victory, but I think actually Hannibal exemplifies that sort of imposter of victory even more than Pyrrhus. So even though <laughs> Pyrrhus gave his name to the to our phrase, I think it should have been the Hannibalic victory.
0: But you start the book with a famous quote from Kipling. It refers to triumph and disaster as being twin imposters, although we tend to think of them as opposites. But earlier in life, you, then a graduate of the London School of Economics with a uh, supposedly glamorous banking job, had doubts about how each of these terms should be defined. And you saw a documentary about Hannibal, and set you exploring what it means to succeed and or fail. I'd like to start by recounting the story of Hannibal uh, from the aspect of, of being a legendary victor, for he still remembered uh, these these millennium later for his uh, his smashing early successes.
1: That's right. In fact, there's a bit of a, a, a renaissance and in interest about Hannibal, Hannibal, Alexander, and Caesar. They were the three great generals of antiquity, and the three and three of the let's say, five or ten greatest generals of all time, so including Napoleon. And Hannibal was considered, uh, by by the way, they compared him, uh, and he he deliberately encouraged this, to (laughs) Hercules. For instance, on the coins he minted, he was considered slightly superhuman and almost divine. And, of course, the same was true... Uh, with Alexander and Caesar. Alexander lived 100 years before and then Caesar a a century after Hannibal. And so they were considered invincible because Hannibal eh, was a Carthaginian who attacked the Romans and seemed always to win. And he killed a quarter of them. If you just uh, apply that ratio to America's male population and then you, you, you sense of he really brought Rome close to extermination. And he was considered invincible. However... And and you mentioned uh, you know the, the core of my idea the imposters of success and failure. Well, look around. Even you're in Sacramento, so so I've been there. Go go to your Capitol, Capitol by the way, from Capitoline Hill <laughs> in Rome, and yeah. look at the architecture. The mm. Romans. So yes. he can't have. It's sort of like we we started with Paris. Well, Hannah will clearly cannot have been invincible if we have Roman buildings in America <laughs> today, right? So, he mu- something must have gone wrong, uh, gone wrong along the way. And that's what I think makes him so fascinating because I think we today, we're always at risk, uh, you know, and I mean, we in America just living our ordinary lives of, of um, confusing, you know, strategy with tactics, of, of maybe, you know, looking for the wrong kind of success and, and failing in a bigger way. And I think that's, that's ultimately the story of Hannibal.
0: Well, it's famous that he crossed the Alps with elephants. He came down into Italy. He fought three battles, and he's smashing successes at three in a row. Uh, He looked unbeatable, and yet, uh, as you point out in the book, he does not succeed in defeating Rome. Uh, A leader named Fabius comes along, decides that if Hannibal can't be beaten on the battlefield, the way to hold him in check is not to fight. It was a strategy that did not seek victory, and, and yet it proved effective.
1: Fabius is one of the other main characters and archetypes in the book, so I invite people to see themselves in in Hannibal's life, but also in Fabius's life and all the other lives in the book. And and here's what where Fabius is relevant to us. And just you you actually recapitulated that very uh, eloquently just now. But for, from the Roman point of view, this sort of god or demigod of Carthage comes over the Alps which is considered impossible in the winter he shows up with elephants out of the snowy alps and starts destroying them and they lose all hope they go through the kubler-ross stages of grief you know anger bargaining depression and so forth and then one of them one of these romans this old guy nicknamed warty because he had a wart he goes one step further and accepts this disaster and i think That's the key for us today. You know, we just had a a lot of people have foreclosures. Some people get diagnosed with cancer. They get divorced. All the stuff, the the proverbial, hits the fan every now and then in life. And then what do you do? And I think step one, Fabius teaches us, is to accept that. And then step two is, at first, not to do anything, to do nothing. And this is kind of a, uh, to me, a Chinese or Eastern concept or you know, uh, out of Taoism almost, you flow with it. If you just fight it, you c- you, c- you can't fi- fight someone like Hannibal. And so Fabius and the Romans stopped fighting him. They stopped fighting battles after a while and and allowed this disaster to run its course. And I compare that to other people like Ernest Shackleton, the explorer who got caught on the ice. Sometimes you've just got to flow with that terrible situation. not Not forever, but just just to, to get on top of it, to stop, to cease being destroyed by it. And that's, I think, the, the psychology of how to respond to a disaster like that. That's what Fabius the Roman teaches us.
0: Well, uh, I, I hate to keep concentrating on Hannibal, because your book does weave in so many other characters, but it certainly is the backbone of the narrative, so I'd like to just move past Fabius to a military genius who arises among the Romans, Scipio. He decides to imitate Hannibal's approach to try and break the stalemate in Italy, and, and this is successful.
1: That's right. Scipio, uh, Publius Cornelius Scipio, he was uh, up to about the time of Julius Caesar, maybe their greatest hero of the Romans. Um, he, but here's how he became a hero. He's sort of the next archetype and the next step. If we're still sort of, I'm still inviting you and your listeners to to read yourself into this larger story. Um, So let's say a disaster strikes, let's call that disaster Hannibal, then Fabius is the first step, he just accepts that and just flows with it, but what's the next step? Well, the next step we could call that Scipio, he was this young aristocrat, he was ten years younger than Hannibal, and he lost everything, He, he himself did not die, but he was in those battles where almost everyone was getting slaughtered, and his family and friends got slaughtered by Hannibal, and his own father was a commander and his uncle was a commander and they were killed by Hannibal's brothers in battle so he was in his 20s and it was at that time illegal for the in Rome to hold a senior command and he just didn't care he just said so scipio um, hit rock bottom and, however there was this paradoxical psychological effect for him that there was nothing left to lose, and he now felt liberated in the way that I remember, like uh, I, I mixed this in, for example, Steve Jobs in 1985, or, or not in 1985, he got fired, that was his disaster from Apple, but then may, many years later, he, he says he felt liberated by that to do something else, and that, of course, was the foundation for his subsequent success that we now know him for. And in that way, Scipio felt liberated, and he did something very unusual. And he sort of studied Hannibal. And you know, he didn't didn't hate him. He just studied him. You know, you can study your disaster in life, and he learned from it. And then he exceeded Hannibal, and he turned everything around with this incredible feat of imagination. He reinvented Roman strategy in a way that the Romans would have considered crazy before him, just because he felt so free in his imagination and. So Scipio is a very inspiring Roman uh, story for us because I think he, he teaches us how to reinvent ourselves.
0: Yeah, I did want to note that I, I was unaware that, that Hannibal and, and Scipio had met before doing battle in Africa, and uh, I certainly find it fascinating to imagine that these two generals, each a genius, talking over their options before liking to do battle after all, because how different history might have turned out if that conversation had, had, had gone another way.
1: Absolutely. And um, they met only once before the battle, and that was on the day before the battle. so they they observed each other from afar for a long time. and I think and they were enemies, but they were they admired each other. They saw that you know, sort of greatness, and I think there's a lesson in that too. you can you don't have to hate your opponents, your enemies. You can sort of see greatness. and and when when they then met, the day before they did battle, um, m- um many years into this war, they had this amazing conversation, if you believe the ancient sources, uh, the Roman sources, where essentially they, they, they talk about this what Rudyard Kipling later called the two impostors of triumph and disaster, how you can't trust success, how you can't trust defeat. And, and, and then they decide, well, yeah, well, but, but fate put us here. Now we have to do it. And then they fought the battle, and Scipio and the Romans won that one they would meet again later in life and again sort of they they almost i in my interpretation they became friends they stuck up for each other in a strange way and i think you see that in in our life you know i'm thinking just now it popped into my head george h w bush and bill clinton you mm-hmm. know what i mean they mm-hmm. they became friends a few years after their their own f- battles were over they only they know what the other has gone through, right? They were in, that, in yeah. that Oval Office. So so you don't have to demonize your opponents. You can learn from them. And, and that is a very fascinating psychological subplot.
0: We're speaking with author Andreas Kluth about his book, Hannibal and Me, What History's Greatest Military Strategist Can Teach Us About Success and Failure. There are many lessons that we we can learn from, from, from Scipio and Hannibal, and we need to, to talk about that, because that's the, the ultimate thrust of your book. But I, I do want to detour into some colorful illustrations. Uh, the book is titled Hannibal and Me, and, and in your case, and me refers to your own life and includes that of a famous relative, the former German Chancellor Ludwig Erhard. Uh, I'd like you to talk a bit about your, your famous uncle, who himself experienced more than his share of successes and failures, but in the end, uh, later in life, the time when you knew him uh, when you were younger... He was satisfied with life.
1: Oh yes, very much. So we, I called him Uncle Lulu. His name was Ludwig Erhard. He, um, he's one of the other stories, uh, along with Eleanor Roosevelt and or, you know people like that, Pablo Picasso, that that reappears throughout the book because we try to understand the story of Hannibal by looking at stories that are closer to us in time. And and he was very close to to me, of course, in many ways because he adopted my father when my, my grandparents died. And so my father grew up basically with him um, in the, the post-war West Germany. And when he became, in the 1950s, the most popular politician in West Germany and maybe in Europe, he was the first economics minister chosen by the American occupation power after the war. And he uh, and, you know, made, founded basically the German currency, the Deutschmark, and the economic system, and that that was remarkably successful. It was called an economic miracle, and he was credited with that. Then, in the 60s, he became chancellor, and on the day, basically, I think, on the day he became chancellor, so the most powerful man in Germany, that's when he started failing. Mm-hmm. So you really had an impo- sharp imposture there, and and there are lots of lessons in, in it. I don't know if if you want me to just uh, expound upon them chronologically.
0: Yeah, take a minute. I mean, I think that I remember when he became chancellor. I'm old enough, and and I, I remember that uh, that era. And it, I was surprised to learn that uh, that Adenauer was had it in for him. I guess after he had he had some success and was trying to engineer his downfall, kind of like uh, they did to uh, Hannibal back in Carthage.
1: Absolutely, and I should say, I mean, I first introduced Uncle Lulu or Ludwig Erhard earlier in the book before we even get there, because he's a very fascinating um example of the opposite life trajectory of a Hannibal or of a Pablo Picasso or of a Meriwether Lewis. All of all of those guys were you know, they had a phenomenal success early in life, basically in their twenties, like Albert Einstein also. We could, and, and that is a kind of trajectory. It's very hard to follow that up but it's a certain kind of success, but there is this other life trajectory, and we see that in people like Harry Truman or in, uh, in, in the world of art in, in, in Cézanne or, or in, indeed, Uncle Lulu. In, in the same way that the great Scipio was, um, had enemies in Rome, like Cato, who they, they sort of just hated him they were jealous of him. And so they hounded Scipio with expense reports. Literally, they audited his his accounts and stuff until they, they kept filing lawsuits against him. They hounded him in the way that we would do this in America today with successful people if we <laughs> want to bring them down. And something similar happened to Ludwig Erhard, to, to my uncle, because he uh, did, couldn't, basically, his alleged allies were not his allies. They turned out to be his enemies, and you mentioned the main one of them the equivalent of Cato and that was the first German chancellor, Konrad Adenauer. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to be on the same side, except they weren't, and really there was a lot of backstabbing going on. And, but also, uh, you know, Uncle Lulu made political mistakes. He, he really played it wrong. It, he, did, he lacked those political skills, and so he didn't sort of embed himself in a, in a party, for a start, and was left naked, and you know, it was a form of political death.
0: Well, you know, the, much of the thrust of your book is about that those trajectories to success, and, and, and you point out that a lesson for the university students who may be listening, and there are many, uh, that, you know, it's good to wish for success in life, but maybe you might want to wish it to come too soon, because a lot of times uh, disaster ensues, and, and, and Albert Einstein is certainly a case in point.
1: Albert Einstein is a case in point. By the way, I, I would sort of almost edit that a little bit. You, you you Of course we all wish for success to come, but the question is, if it comes, what are you going to do then? Are you ready for the shock? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the, the issue. Can you avoid getting trapped by it? Because we see that again and again. Is if, you, if you become successful, and especially if you're young, I'm thinking Tiger Woods here and so forth, do you just go to pieces? And one story in the book is by Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark. He succeeded when he was young and then literally you know, drank himself to oblivion and killed himself he committed suicide he couldn't handle it but but you mentioned this this other strange paradoxical effect of success if it does come uh, and you know i illustrated with both hannibal and albert einstein and that is usually especially nowadays the way we become successful is we use our imagination we would call that creativity And so depending on what you're, you know, know, the students at UC Davis, uh, they have creative ideas, bold ideas. Often it's young people who have bolder ideas than older people, and so that's how we succeed. One of those ideas works. And then what happens next? Well, somehow the success, again and again in history, seems to imprison the imagination of people like that, of, of people who have success. And it even happened to Albert Einstein. And this is sort of... To me, again, he's so famous for the stuff he did early in his life. And then, you know, we, we have the poster of him with his wild hair. And, 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 and we love Albert Einstein, I, absolutely. But we, we tend to forget that for this whole second half of his career, he was essentially almost sterile. He got stuck in his equations and incredibly frustrated. And he couldn't find a way out. And for Albert Einstein had brought about... You know, in physics, a revolution with relativity and with quantum physics, he had a hand in that too. And then the world of physics essentially went into that quantum revolution with these new, this new generation of physicists that were using their imagination and creativity, just as Albert Einstein had used it. And the word he had used when he was young is "imp." He was impudent. (laughs) There is a kind of like an almost like you aspect about using your imagination in this wild way, you know, when you do thought experiments. And they were now doing that, and their names were Walter Heisenberg and Niels Bohr and so forth. But he, he could not accept that anymore, and because he now he was in that prison of his imagination. And he said, no, 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 and he stopped using his mind and that, with that fluidity that he had done earlier. And the young guys... They've they found that uh, tragedy, as Max Born said, literally about him. They they observed the, their sort of great mentor essentially being captive in that sense, and they found that very sad. And so uh, Einstein got stuck in his equations, and literally, when he died, you know, they found equations after equations on his bed. And and he, you know, he lived a fantastic life, and he's very inspiring. But but in in the goal he set himself. For, for a unit to find a unified theory in physics, he got completely stuck, and he would have been the first to say it.
0: Well, your, your final chapter goes over the, the lessons that we might learn from Hannibal and the others that are in the book, and I'd like to discuss um, a few of those, starting with um, how one should never confuse means with ends, nor tactics with strategy. And you, you describe victories as merely tools, which is an unconventional way to think of them, but, but, uh, but a good way.
1: Well, that was the original core idea when I sort of woke up to the paradox of that story and uh, of, of my life, and uh, that, that's how it started, is, isn't it funny, remember at the beginning we said, uh, isn't it funny that Hannibal won all these battles, and then we look around and the buildings we have here, the post office, it's Roman. I mean, that's strange. So, clearly, the victories cannot, were not, could not have been the end. Uh, clearly, victories have to be the means towards something. And, you know, it, as a good general, as a good the, the, the Greek word for general is strategos. So as a good strategist in life, in sports, in politics, in, in love, whatever, first pick the right battles. I mean, don't get caught fighting battles because you can win them if they lead you in the wrong direction. You know, when I was at the bank in my 20s, um, and I, I hated my life there, but there were a lot of people who, did well and they, they won little victories and they got promoted, and by getting promoted they ended up having a life they never wanted. They should have been fired and to do the thing they were meant to do, which I was fortunate to be in that position. Uh, very grateful to my my bosses at the bank for that. Um, but you you know you can get promoted to become a person you don't want to become. In the in a small setting, I have a chapter on Tiger Woods' strategy. Well, it, when he was at his peak, which he is not. Not anymore, so we can, that, that's the addendum. But when he was at his peak, he was better than anyone else at thinking backwards from the green to figure out not what is the best shot, the biggest drive I can hit now, that would be the equivalent of a victory, but what is a shot that gets me to a point on the fairway from which I can have an easy shot up to a point on the green from which I can have an easy putt into the hole. That's how he thought, sort of backwards, backwards. And Hannibal could have thought that way, and then he probably would not have chosen some of these battles that he won because they didn't advance him towards his goal. And we do that all the time nowadays, I think, um, just thinking of the presidential primaries that I'm covering right now and, and so forth, so we could look to politics, but we could look to our personal lives, and I think this, this is probably where it gets controversial. And, but I, I, I do see a lot of people, you know, um, sort of now that I have turned 40 and stuff, who uh, probably confused means with ends, tactics with strategy, that they thought uh, success in their particular career was important right now, as opposed to, for example, success in their private life, because there, there may be a trade-off, right? So you could maybe um, getting a, get a job or a promotion or an advancement of some sort, and quote-unquote forget to have children with the, the partner you love, mm-hmm. and then one day you realize, well, now I'm successful, except darn, I really screwed this one up. I, I, I forgot that why I wanted to be successful in the first place. It was to, to raise a great family, and now I'm you know, mainly for women but also for men. Now it's a bit late, and uh, this is not as easy as, as I thought. And, and so this sort of tactical thinking as opposed to strategic thinking, winning pointless battles uh, instead of important battles, that 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 take us where we want to go, this is what I think the the core of the the lessons of of, of the stories in this book are is
0: well uh, as we as we wrap up another lesson I just wanted to touch on one we already we, we already have touched on it, but it 's probably worth mentioning again. you point out that uh, one should see the best in people but protect yourself from the worst in them, and of course uh, Hannibal and Scipio both they had this curiously amicable, respectful relationship, while each guy's being under, undermined by his political enemies at home. There, There's certainly a lesson in that.
1: Absolutely. And I know start one chapter with a quote by Jean-Paul Sartre, hell is other people. And I'm, <laughs> I'm very much against these books that are all touchy-feely, all sort of optimistic and stuff. That's sort of the... I, I, you know, when, when you get a bit older, you realize, um, yeah... Uh, Hell is other people. It can be at least, and and it's all good to speak about creativity and stuff, and we do. But every now and then, you just got to be shrewd and observe what is going on in the office politics, in the cubicles around you, in the classroom around you. Who's ganging up with who? What what alliances are forming? And so, the, you know, this sort of, a lot of great people, they're magnanimous. That's the sort of old-fashioned word, but they almost... And my uncle, Ludwig Erhard, is, is a great example of this. They almost refuse to believe, if they have great ideas, that other people would just be petty
0: yes. or envious. Yes,
1: yes. And, and they don't protect themselves. And so now to, if you just protect yourself, then you become one of these unsavory characters, and I have several of them in the book. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we meet them what are they like? So then you're the gossiper and so forth. I don't. I don't. I'm not advising you to become one of these. So don't use, as it were, this small p politics as a sword, but do use it as a shield. Because you've got to have people who support you. You've got to, you know, have uh, have networks. You've got to be savvy about these. And 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 these lives do tell us a lot about. You know the mistakes of a lot of people when they don't realize. Okay, now I've 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 hit the jackpot, or this is going well. Except a lot of people will start hating you right at that moment, and you've got to be aware of it without sort of letting that change you and define you.
0: Well, this brings us nicely, I think, to the, what, what I would consider our final point today. Uh, you note in the book that we each get to define what success is, and uh, that we should keep in mind that as we get older, that the definition of success must include something that we really don't quite have a word for in English. And as a German-American, you've you've gone to the German language. Uh, German or Yiddish has the word mensch. It translates roughly as a person who's achieved a sort of peace with himself, able to transcend conventional success or failure. Um, And and I think you've chosen well among words to describe what can make triumph and failure both imposters. And I think you really hit the nail on the the head with that. And I I hope your book can lead us to uh, perhaps the English language, borrowing that word from the German, because it really precisely defines the right concept.
1: Thank you. I mean, yeah, I guess the goal is to be a mensch, and I think the more uh, academic-sounding way to say that is, I guess the goal ultimately has to be, and it'll take usually a lifetime to realize it, to transcend success and failure, victory and defeat, just to to get beyond and to do our duty and stay simple and good, and and in that is a sort of a higher success that we hopefully get into as we get older.
0: Indeed. We've been speaking with Andreas Kluth. He's the California correspondent for The Economist magazine and author of the book we have been discussing, Hannibal and Me, What History's Greatest Military Strategist Can Teach Us About Success and Failure. I really can't recommend it highly enough to our listeners.
1: Thank you so much, Doug. You've
0: been listening to Radio Parallax. We're going to ramp up to go see an eclipse in Oregon. We may may not have some original material on next week's program. We'll try to do so. If we fail, we'll try to make it up to you the week after. We'll see you then.